But have you ever, ever been on, on the top of a very high mountain and, and gazed out on a clear day on everything that you could see? Many of you have. I remember for our 20th wedding anniversary, Rhonda and I were able to take our kids back to Banff where we honeymooned uh, originally. And outside Banff, there's Sulphur Mountain, which is about 8,000 feet uh, in height. So short compared to some of the big 14,000 footers uh, in our nation and in Canada, but, but nonetheless very beautiful to get up there, to look at on the top of that mountain, be able to look in almost any direction and to see mountains and valleys and rivers, almost almost endless. Uh, in, in Banff, there's very little development outside the town itself, so it's it's raw wilderness. It was just absolutely awe-inspiring. And even if you were down in the valley, looking up at the mountain or on top of the mountain, looking at the surrounding areas, it, it just screamed of the majesty of the God who created all that. Now, if you, you don't have to travel to mountains like that to get that vision of God, which is good things. We don't have mountains in Ohio. But you can nonetheless get a, a great vision of the majesty of God by just getting away from the cities at a, on a clear night and looking up. And on a clear night and you know, if it's dark, and especially if the moon is, has not yet risen, just you see an abundance, an array of stars and planets that are on really just fathomable, mind-blowing distances from us. And yet you see them. And if the conditions are just right at certain times of the year, you can even, if you know what you're looking for, you can even catch a glimpse of another galaxy. It's just going to be a little dot. But in that dot is two and a half million light years away. And that little dot is 200,000 light years in width. It's a whole nother galaxy. Does that make you feel small? That's why God created that. Psalm 8 brings us to consider the truth that God has embedded His majestic fingerprints into His creation. And there are many places we could look to see this, but Psalm 8 calls us to, to really consider the expanse of the heavens, to see their grandeur and greatness, and at the same time reflect on our puniness. Why? So we might offer up a heart of worship to our God. That we would understand the grace of God. That he would even be mindful of us and care for us. Contemplations of the vast scale of the universe help us to see the majesty of God. And when you understand the majesty of God, it really helps you see yourself in right perspective. To worship him in holy humbleness. And, and I just want to give us a little bit of the background of Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a psalm from David. We see that from the superscription. And as I mentioned before, as we've gone through psalms, it's a little bit, little bit confusing that over the time, these superscriptions, which are, which are um, not original, but they were, they were placed there at a very early state so that they're reliable. It's not like the translator's title at the, at the top. 
Um, if you're looking at the Legacy Standard Bible, the title, How Majestic Is Your Name, is put there by by the Legacy Standard Bible translators, those who, who did that. They gave it that title. But below that, in smaller writing, is uh, what we call superscription. And over the years, well before you and I were born, the superscription was confused with the subscription. Now, subscription was musical notation that came after the psalm. And so over the years, these two have become confused because some in our Bibles, we have lots of white space, but that was not the case with ancient manuscripts where the manuscript they're writing on, the paper or the animal skin or whatever they're using to write on was very expensive. So these things became confused with one another. So when you see the choir directing according to the Giddeth, that actually goes with Psalm 7. So the musical notation that goes with Psalm 8 is found in the beginning of Psalm 9 for the choir director, Almoth Laban. And we know what for the choir director means. It just means that there is somebody directing the choir. The Psalms were meant to sing. Uh, and these were to be sung. And Almoth Laban, we think, was a musical tune. Uh, we don't have a lot of understanding of some of these musical notations. Uh, perhaps in the future we'll discover something that will help us understand that. But for now, we don't uh, really understand that too much. But what we do understand is this was written, uh, a psalm written by King David. And what was the occasion where David wrote this? Some time in which he contemplated the night sky. Remember, David was a shepherd who spent many nights out in the field tending his father's sheep. So he would have much experience about this. So it's it's David reflecting upon the grandeur of God in the night sky. Notice that the sun is not mentioned. That's another reinforcing that he's he's thinking of the night sky, the nighttime sky. When was this written? We don't have an idea. A lot of scholars speculate, but it's just that it's speculation um, and probably un- unhelpful for the most part here. Uh, but I want you to see the literary context. When I talk about the literary context, Sometimes it's it's where the psalm finds itself within the canon of Scripture. So sometimes in our minds we can look at chapter divisions and, and totally segregate them. But we need to understand that while Psalm 8 is a complete unit, one psalm, uh, when the collectors of the psalms put this together, they placed it there strategically. Like, for example, Psalm 1 is, is there as an invitation to the Psalter. It's not there by just random accident. Right? So too, Psalm 8 is placed where it is intentionally. Right? So, if you just think about this, Psalm 1 contrasts the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Psalm 2 reveals kind of God's mocking of those who resist Him right? because they rise up against Him. But it's a call for them to, to bow their knee before Him. But then Psalms 3 through 7 right, are dealing with difficult circumstances that David faced. There's some laments in there. There's cries to God for help. But at the end of verse, at the end of 7, look at Psalm 7, verse 17. David says this. He says, I will give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh most high. Right? I will. Praise Yahweh. And again, I'll just reinforce, Yahweh, we'll talk about the personal name of God. I will praise Yahweh most high. And then what happens in Psalm 8? He actually does that. So verse 17 of Psalm 7 is inviting us to contemplate Psalm 8. 
And that's how these things tie tie together. Sometimes we can't always understand how they tie together, but in this case, the connection is clear. Why Psalm 8 follows Psalm 7. Now, Psalm 8 is going to call us to, to contemplate the majestic rule of God. God's majestic rule. And the first thing we see in verse 1 and in verse 9 is the majestic rule of God declared. The, the psalmist is simply declaring the, the majestic rule of God. He says, O Yahweh, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And in verse 9, we find the exact same wording. What is he doing? He's framing the main point for us. It's called an inclusio. It's, it, these are bookends. He's framing the topic which he wants to address, which is the great majesty of God. So everything, when you see that, when you see the exact same repetition, opening and closing a section, in this case it's the whole entire psalm and other places of scripture, you're going to find it where it's within a chapter. But when you see that, that's done intentionally. It's done to frame it and say everything in between the, the first statement and the second statement, everything in between feeds into telling us about the great majestic rule of God. That God's name is majestic. And, he, and that's what he declares. Now this psalm, like many other, uh, pray, uh, many other psalms, is a, is a prayer. He is addressing God directly. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord. And notice he uses two different descriptors for God. First, oh, Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. That's the name that God gave himself. He revealed himself um, to us in Scripture. He, he revealed himself to Moses when he was sending Moses to Egypt to rescue the Israelites, to lead the Israelites out. Moses asked, who may I say? sent me who if they ask me who sent me whom shall i tell them and god said to, said to him yahweh i am that i am right? so yahweh is his personal name it's also his covenant keeping name it's the name by which he swears allegiance to his people that he will care for them so when the psalmist or any other portion of scripture when they address use the word yahweh which in other translations is, is, is uh, translated Lord in the small capitals, Yahweh, that's the, they are invoking a personal relationship. They're also invoking that, that covenantal relationship that God established with his people. So the psalmist opens up, which is saying, Oh, Yahweh, our Lord. Well, what does the word Lord mean? That's, that's the Hebrew word Adonai, which means master. It's an acknowledgement, not only that, that God is personal, God's covenant keeping, but that he's our master. And notice he says, our Lord. So, so David's not, this isn't a personal psalm. This isn't a personal prayer. David is leading this, but others are joining in with him. Whether uh, this is probably written when he was king. Right? So he is leading the nation in this prayer is what we could understand by that. And what does he say? He says, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Now, the word how there isn't asking a question. It's, it's making a statement. He's contemplated the stars already in his mind. He's contemplated the moon already in his mind and the vastness of this. And he's just like, oh, how majestic. It's an exclamation. And what does it mean to be uh, majestic or majesty? 
It refers to might and magnificence. In this case, the might and magnificence of God. It's talking about his incomparable glory and irresistible power, which inspires awe and reverence. Uh, One Old Testament dictionary explains that the word majestic, when used of God, appears in context having to do with Yahweh's cosmological or other superhuman acts. And that's exactly what we see in Psalm 8. God's great work of creation. Showing his superhuman acts. Superhuman just means above human. God did this. Think about it this way. You may never have had this experience. But if you've ever had um, the the privilege of like being in the room with a, a noteworthy person, someone of gravitas. Right? We've lost this with many of our politicians. But if you're ever in the same room with somebody who has gravitas to them, meaning they've led something, they did something significant, they filled the gap, they led the nation in victory, you, you feel a sense of awe being in their presence. Used to be that way when presidents would walk into a room. Uh, this is still carried out in a formal sense in the military. When someone of higher rank walks in the room, everybody is called to attention and everybody stands to attention. Stop what you're doing. Focus on the person that just came in. That's a very small, imperfect illustration of what the majesty of God is doing for us. So when you catch a glimpse of the majesty of God, truly it gives you goosebumps. I mean, it just, it just changes how you look at him. Changes your experience. And, and notice the, the kind of the poetic way that the psalmist is talking about the majesty of God. He says, how majestic, he doesn't say how majestic are you. He says, how majestic is your name above the earth? Your name. So he's just changing the, changing the way he's stating it. It still means that he's calling God majestic. He's declaring the, the majesty of God. But he's focusing on the name of God. The name of God is associated with who God is. And even, we do this today. The name of the person, if they have a good reputation, is you would say, oh, he's got a, he's got a good name. Right? And when you send, you train your kids out and they're beginning to go out on their own, you like, sometimes you'll remind them, hey, you know, you're not just working for yourself. You're, when you work, people know my name. It's a family name, right? So it's like how your children act uh, is, is like reflects upon you. And that's not always fair because sometimes the parents do the right thing and the kids still make bad decisions. But you remind your kids of that because it is true. And it's true the other way too. You know, if the parents really mess things up, it can ruin the kids' names where they want to change their name and don't want to have their father's name. But in this case, they, he's using the association of, of God's name with his greatness. He's saying, your name, O Lord. And scripture does this in many different places. So God's name is associated with, with majesty and being majestic because God is majestic. And, and the psalmist is speaking about a majesty that is greater than anything or anyone else. It's incomparable. He says, how majestic is your name in all the earth? No matter where you look, high or low or the breadth, wherever you go in the earth, there's nothing with greater majesty than God. So just pause there and just realize that just as the psalmist 
has done, we owe God praise. We owe him praise. Every single one of his creatures owes him praise for his majesty because he is truly worthy of that. Yes, there's lots of people in this world who don't praise him, that don't give him the the praise that that he's worthy of. But we owe it to him. We owe him praise all and reverential adoration because he is truly majestic. And, and we do that not just on Sundays, but we're called to do that throughout our lives, day in and day out. So this is what the psalmist is calling us to do when he, when he declares the majestic rule of God. Let's move from the majestic rule of God declared to the majestic rule of God displayed. And we see this in the latter part of verse 1 and in verse 2. Okay. So talking about talking to the Lord, the psalmist says, you who have who displays your splendor above the heavens and from the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. What, what is the psalmist doing? The psalmist is is painting a picture, a word picture, and he's using great contrast. He's calling us to contemplate the, the greatness of God through his creation, which is really inconceivable to us because we don't know the ends of it. He's also calling us to consider the, a helpless, um, strengthless little child. And through both the greatness and the grandeur of the universe, and as well the, say, the whimperings of a, of a small little child, God is declaring his majesty. The one is Let's say not so surprising. The other is a bit surprising. Now let's take these one by one. God displays his splendor above the heavens. A splendor is a word related to glory, power. It even can be translated majesty, although it's not the same word as majesty as we've already encountered. This this splendor is is above the heavens. So here it's just not in the earth or wherever above all the earth. It's, It's above the heavens. This glory is above the heavens, meaning... It's exceedingly tall. It's exceedingly large. There's nothing com- to compare with it. Uh, the, the, the psalmist here speaks of truly draw, dropping beauty and majesty. You know, last night, I don't know if you caught it, we had a beautiful sunset right, that just, just caught just the grandeur of God's creation in a very small way. And the psalmist here is calling, calling us to contemplate even, even grandeur, the uh, the entire universe, just not uh, our solar system. Uh, when you see God's splendor, uh, we respond in praise to Him. And you see God's splendor when you look into His creation. Look up into the night sky and see the multitude of stars. Um, I mean, it, God just gives us little glimpses of this all the time. The psalmist is just thinking about a night sky, but but I can remember uh, driving uh, as a family. We were driving somewhere at night, and the, the moon was just rising. And there's some conditions I don't can't explain it, but there's some conditions. The moon is coming up. It's slightly orange from catching some of the the rays of the sun that have just set, and it just looks so much larger than it does when it's way up high in the night sky. And it's just like so inspiring to. Of, of to reflect upon the God who made that. Uh, and the fact that uh, God's glory is above all is something that's, that's a theme throughout Scripture. For, for example, in Psalm 
113 verse 4 tells us that Yahweh is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. And then again in Psalm 148 verse 13, let them praise the name of Yahweh for his name alone is set on high. His splendor is above earth and heaven. So just again, pause to try to apply this to our lives. The next time you look up into the heavens, praise Yahweh for his glory, for his majestic name. Now, I know that people can look up into the night sky and come to a radically different conclusion. So let me speak to to any of those who might be listening this morning. When you look up in the night sky, you might see, um, just say, uh, come to a different conclusion than that there's a creator God who is majestic. You might come to the conclusion, particularly if you're an agnostic, that of, of looking at the night sky and saying, wow, you know, that the whole process of evolution really did a, a nice job. That there are people that come to that conclusion. But they come to that conclusion not based on the, the data of, the, of God's declaration of his majesty, but they come to that declaration because they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And you see this. Just turn to your Bibles a minute to Romans 1. So when people don't believe that there is a God or look into the heavens, like a Richard Dawkins or somebody like that, look into the heavens and they, can't, they understand the greatness of it and they come to a radically different conclusion. It's, it, the, the reason they come to a different conclusion is because of what's going on in their heart. Uh, Romans uh, 7, um, specifically dealing, uh, look at verses, well, I'll just pick it up in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without an excuse. Paul is referring to the creation. The unbeliever looking up into the night sky and seeing God's declaration that he exists. Verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image and the likeness of corruptible man, the birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their heart to impurity so their bodies would be dishonored among them. So there's a, there's a series of, of judgments that are mentioned in Romans 1 where God is giving over the unbeliever to their, to their foolish way of thinking and to their sinful lifestyle. But just understand, if you look in the night sky and you don't conclude that there is, there is a, a wonderful, majestic God who created all that, it's not because of the data, the scientific data. It's because of your heart. And I just call you to, to repent of your foolish thinking. Trust the word of God. Trust the God who made you. And trust him and believe in him. And call upon his name for salvation. And he is a majestic God. Now there's a second way in which God's majesty is displayed. 
in Psalm 8, and specifically focusing on verse 2. And this is a nearly polar opposite to what we just discussed. And that is that God displays his majesty through the mouth of infants and babies. Through the mouth of infants and babies. Through the mouths of children. Now from the mouths of of infants and nursing babies, God has established strength. That's what verse 2 tells us. Now let's just unpack that a little bit. Infants and, and nursing babies... I tried to find a good way to distinguish these two, and they kind of mesh together. And I think that's intentional. It just emphasizes, it reinforces uh, the idea that these are children who are so young, they're utterly dependent upon their parents for care, for food, for protection, everything. And it's through those that God establishes his strength. Now think about that. Really, God establishes his strength through these little infants? That's not how we would do it. We would establish our strength or demonstrate or display our strength through amassing the greatest military army that we could. But that's not God's methods. His method is different. And and before we dig into this a little bit more, just look at the reason. As we continue reading in verse 2, He does this because of his adversaries. David says, because of your adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So the psalm doesn't deal with David's adversaries. It deals with God's adversaries, in a sense. So in order to deal with with his adversaries, God is establishing the strength, his strength, through infants. And the results of that strength are this, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. To cease means to stop. It means to put an end to them. God used the mouth of of children to stop his enemies. And that's how God displays his majestic rule. Now, now this is saying that God, essentially, God is working through the weak of this world to establish his strength. Which, if you think about that theme through Scripture, it appears many times. This This is a pattern of God. God's not interested in using the mighty man who everybody says, oh yeah, he should be king. He should lead us into battle. God's not interested in using those who are strong because they take the glory. They think they did it. But when God uses the weak and the lowly, they know they didn't do it. They know that God won the victory. Now, how does God do this? How does God use even little infants and children, to establish his strength, well, he becomes their strength. Like There's such an obvious, like just as this, the heavens are so obviously declaring the majesty of God, when God works through little children, it becomes very obvious, like the stars, that God's working. He's working. He did that. There's no way that they can take credit for it. That's, that's, that's what God is doing in this. And it's interesting that this verse in Psalm 8 is quoted by Jesus in Matthew 21. So turn to Matthew 21. Gospel of Matthew chapter 21. Looking at verse verses 12 to 14. So just to give you a little historical context, this is the time when Jesus comes into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. Okay? 
So people have come, like on the, the, the Palm Sunday, they've laid down the palms and their clothing. They've, they've paved the way for Jesus to enter victoriously to Jerusalem. Uh, look at verse 12. It kind of picks right up. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. All that was just incredibly offensive to the religious leaders. That he would come in there, overturn that, like the lame and the beggars coming into the temple. That's like desecrating the temple for for the religious leaders. But, But Jesus was healing them there. All of it was highly offensive. Um, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the marvelous things which he had done, and watch this, the children who were shouting in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. Here you have children who get it. They get it, who Jesus is. And Jesus would say, let the little children come unto me. But the wise religious leaders didn't. Okay, it's another evidence that you have the same display of majesty, the same display of truth to radically different conclusions. The children get it. But the religious leaders don't. They become indignant. But look at verse 16. And, and Jesus said to them, uh, they said to him, do you, do you hear what these children are saying? I mean, they know that they were praising Jesus as if he was God, if he was the Messiah. And the religious leaders are indignant about all this. And they're like, do you hear what these children are saying? In other words, they're saying, silence them. Don't let them do this. You know, it's like when, when Paul was on his missionary journeys, and sometimes when he healed people, the people of that area would think he was a god. And they, they, they wanted to worship Paul, and Paul's like, stop it, don't do that. Well, that's the exact reaction that they expected Jesus to have. But Jesus didn't react that way because Jesus was indeed God. He was worthy to be praised, and the children got it. But look at what Jesus says. And Jesus said to them, yes, I hear. That's what he says. I hear them. Have you never read? Love that phrase. He expects them as the religious leaders to know this. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. Psalm 8. Now it's interesting that Psalm 8 from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and that uses the word praise instead of strength. But understand, these things are related concepts. So that when the translators of the Septuagint, they understood that word strength to mean praise, so that's why they use the Greek word for praise. That, that much is clear, and Jesus is applying it that way. But praise and strength are related to one another. So the strength of God working through the children uh, stops God's adversaries and causes the children to praise. So what you're seeing in Psalm 8 when, when God says establishing his strength, that's a strength to silence the enemies. But what that same display of strength does 
as it causes the children to praise. So the same action creates two different things. So the, the, you're just seeing those things come together. They're, they're like two sides of the same coin, of the same action. Now, when David wrote this in Psalm 8, if you go back to Psalm 8, David may have been thinking about literal infants and babies. And it's sort of applied that way by Jesus in, in Matthew 21. But he may also have been using infants and children in a metaphorical sense, in a figurative sense. Because he may have been thinking about how God used him to conquer Goliath. Now we remember David as the strong and mighty warrior king. And that is what he became. And not perfect. He failed. He sinned. He sinned grievously. But he was he became a mighty warrior. Remember they, they said of Saul, he's killed his thousands, but of David, his ten thousands. But David didn't start that way. And when David hit the battlefield, or was approaching the battlefield where Goliath was taunting the Israel, and, and he asked to fight Goliath, no one thought he could do that. His older brother made fun of him for being there. King Saul said, you're but a lad. How are you going to take on Goliath? And even when David was on the field, just to reinforce this fact, Goliath made fun of David and said, you're, you're, just, you're just a lad. Like you're, they're, they're sending that. Israel is so desperate, they're sending us the dogs. That's what he said. So David was young. He was inexperienced. He wasn't a hardened warrior. And if you read that whole account of David and Goliath and you come away with the idea that, that David is the hero, you've misread that. The, the stark difference between the strength of David and the strength of Goliath leads to one proper conclusion, and that is God won the battle. Yes, he used David, and he used that stone, but he used that stone in some kind of way where he hit exactly the mark at a, at a really just a profound speed taking Goliath down. David did the action, but David's not the hero. God did that. And, and so we see that, that this very well could be referring, David could have had in mind that incident. In any case, we know that God uses the weak to demonstrate his strength. And we know this very clearly from many places in Scripture, but you could go to 1 Corinthians one I'll just read that to you. 1 Corinthians one twenty-six. There the Apostle Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, uh, the base thing and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And, and so this is what the Lord is, is doing. Realize that God doesn't often use the mighty and the noble to accomplish his purposes. You know, sometimes we can think of like, uh, rock stars or musicians or even politicians and we could say oh if he were only in Christ the Lord could do much through him the reality is 
he would probably take credit for himself and ruin himself spiritually. Now God does use some who are nobility and some who are mighty. doesn't say never, but just the pattern is, if you're in Christ, you're among the weak. You're among those who are disdained by the world. But it's through you that God wants to demonstrate his strength. And this is another reason why in Scripture we must not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Even when God does great things through us, it's to magnify His name, not ours. We can't take credit for it. Um, you know, God is building this church. But He's doing it. I'm preaching the same way, hopefully a little better, but than it was when there was like 12. The point of it is the Word of God is doing His work. He is building the church. He is drawing those who love Him and love His Word. And He gets the glory. It's His work. His doing. And God loves to use the small and the insignificant to accomplish His, his purposes. So understand, beloved, as Christians, our goal isn't to become popular or to lead the, 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 the world in like just being um, accepted and influencing people through our just our greatness and our wonder and our strength or our music or you know any of those things. Um, God is going to use us to accomplish His purpose, and the world is going to think we're stupid. The world is going to think you believe that. We read Genesis one. And people, most people, even many who call themselves Christians, will say, do you believe that? And they'll look at you and they'll say it in such a way they're like, you're stupid. And you can just say, I might be stupid by the ways and judgments of this world, but I'll take that over the foolishness of this world. Because the wisdom of God is foolishness of this world, but it's wiser than the wisdom of man. That's what we know from Scripture. So that's how God uses the small, the insignificant to, to silence his, his enemies, his adversaries. Let's move on from the majestic rule of God displayed, the majestic rule of God contemplated. In, Psalm, in verses 3 and 4, let me just read it. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? David is calling us to consider the vastness of God's creation. Um, and and he, he uses, it's just a wonderful way he puts this. I see your heavens, personal pronoun, your heavens. God owns the heavens, your heavens. And then he says, they're the work of your fingers. Just think of that. It's like God's finger paint. How hard is it to finger paint? Not very hard. Some can do it better than others. I don't do it very well. But God's creation is like a finger painting. It took no effort. Very little effort. And we know from reading Genesis 1 that God actually spoke it into being. So, you know, God doesn't have a finger. I mean, now that, now that God is incarnate through Christ, He has a physical body, so He has a finger. But understand that in creation, when all this was made, he, he didn't have a physical body. So we're not talking about a physical body. This is poetic language to help us understand how effortless creation was for God. Six days he spoke it into being. 
David specifically mentions that God established the moon and the stars, again showing that he was reflecting upon the night sky. They were created by direct action of God, and not something that that was, um, uh, you could say, divinely superintended uh, evolution. This is a direct action of God. They're, they're God's handiwork. And this is described for us as we read in Genesis 1. We read it earlier, but verses 14 and 19, just to refresh our memory. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. So God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, that's the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night, that's the moon, and also the stars. Boom. The stars, that's all that we're told. And also the stars. Instantly. Just look up in the night sky. It's going to get darker earlier tonight. Maybe it'll be a clear sky and you can do this tonight. Look up in the night sky. God created that. But just like a, not even a whole sentence is devoted to that. And the stars also. That's it. All of that. God created it. It's, it's impressively massive. We can't comprehend this expanse. We can hardly understand our own how big our own galaxy, our, our, sorry, our whole solar system is. And remember that our solar system is just one part of the Milky Way galaxy. And our galaxy is just one of the many, very many galaxies that we know exists. Now, you've probably heard a lot of statistics on the size of space. Um, but I found one analysis from NASA to be interesting and um, helpfully mind-blowing. I'll just quote them. Our solar system is huge. That's an understatement. There's a lot of empty space out there between planets. Voyager 1, the most distant human-made object, has been in space for more than 40 years and still has not escaped the influence of our sun. As of February 1st, 2020, so three years ago, Voyager 1 is about 13.8 billion miles from the sun, nearly four times the average distance from the sun to icy Pluto. Scientists figured out a while ago that riding out the huge numbers wasn't the best use of their time, so they invented an astronomical unit. One astronomical unit is 93 million miles. It represents the average distance from the sun to the earth. It would take an airliner more than 20 years to fly that distance, assuming it was uh, flying at typical airliner speed of 400 miles an hour. And that, that's just a one-way ticket, 20 years there, 20 years back, assuming we could even do that technology-wise. And in an effort to bring these vast distances down to a size we can kind of comprehend, um, this, is, this is NASA again. We've shrunk the solar system down to the size of a football field. Football season. Thought it would work. On this scale, the sun, by far the largest thing in our solar system, is only a ball about two-thirds of an inch in diameter sitting on the goal line. Imagine yourself. You're in the Brown Stadium. Next time you're there, you look at it. Think about the expanse. There's a little ball sitting on the goal line, two-thirds of an inch in diameter. That's the sun. The 
The other planets, the smaller planets, they continue this analogy, the inner planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, are about the size of grains of sand on a football field. You're not going to be able to see them on that scale. So, understand. That's what that picture is given to help us understand how big God is. And how little we are, which is exactly where David goes. In his contemplation, he contemplates the greatness of God, but also man in light of that greatness. David asked two questions that really hit at the same thing. What is man that you remember him? And the son of man that you care for him? Now, don't misunderstand when what David's language there, when he says you remember him, God doesn't forget anything. God doesn't learn anything. And therefore, he doesn't forget anything. He knows it all because he's omniscient. He's using the word remember to indicate care, to indicate attention. Essentially, what he's saying is, in light of your great universe and all that you have going on, and, and the psalmist understands, though I stated, he understands that God sustains this universe, holds it together by the power of his word. He says, what is man that you pay attention to me? Now we said on that, that scale, the football field, the earth was just a grain of sand. I didn't see an analogy to compare like the average human sizes in that. They probably couldn't see us even in one of our most powerful microscopes. That's, that's the size. And the psalmist understands that and he's saying, Lord, you, you, you pick me out like a, like a flea. And not just him, but he's speaking on behalf of, of humanity. And David's not speaking, he uses the word man, he's not using man as a, uh, the word he's using isn't typical word for man as opposed to a woman. He's just using the word man as in humanity. What is, what is humanity that you would even pay attention to us? And he uses the phrase son of man, which is one of Jesus' favorite phrases. And the son of man, both these words emphasize the frailty, the humanity, humanity as opposed to divinity of God. Like, who are we that you would even pay attention to us, that you would care for us, that you would provide, that you would rescue, that you would help us? Given the vastness of the universe and the puniness of man, David is simply amazed that God remembers him, that God cares for him at all. Now apply this to your own life. God cares for you. That great God who created a universe you can't even comprehend or find the end of, he cares for you. He knows you. And he's working in your life. If you're already a Christian, he's conforming you to the image of Christ. And if you're not certain where you're at, or if you're currently unbelieving, not in Christ, he's calling you to pay attention to him, to realize your sins. He knows all your sins. And to realize that he's provided a Messiah, Jesus Christ, God himself, that big God that created everything, came to earth. A puny little man. To live a perfect life, to die for our sins on the cross, and raise the newness of life. And that that man, who is God, is now interceding at the throne of the Father on behalf of his children. 
and just let that let that sink in. That you have a massively awesome, majestic God, and He cares for you. Again, to use an earthly example, no matter where you're at in your political spectrum, if the President of the United States calls you and says, "Hey, is there anything I can do for you? Is there any way I can help you?" That's going to mean something to you. That's just a that's just a, a little silly earthly example. God is concerned for you. And he wants none to perish, but all to come to everlasting life. And you're going to reject that? What foolishness. Don't be that foolish. Even today, come, come to know Christ. Come before him as your king. Now, I'm convicted a bit about this because God's kind of busy running his universe. You know how big it is. He's kind of busy. But he invites us at any time to come pray. To pray to him, talk to him, pour out our concerns to him. It's not a bother to him. It's not like he has better things to do. Because God can do it all at the same time. It's hard for us to fathom that. Like sometimes as a father, you know, I'm so busy working on something. One of my kids comes in, or Rhonda comes in, and wants to ask me something. And I'm and I'm so focused, sometimes I don't respond the right way. And I respond with a little bit of irritation because I'm being interrupted. And it's just like, oh, that's so wrong. Because my God, who is much busier than I am, does he respond that way? There's, there's a gentleman I knew. Uh, he's the father-in-law of my first wife. He was such a good example of this. No matter what he was doing, how busy, how busy he was, whether he's involved in the shop and his garage or something else, when one of his daughters or his wife needed something, he would just stop. Yeah, sure. What can I do for you? That's what God did. In a sense, that's who we need to be as men, as fathers. To, to, in, a, in a very imperfect way, to mirror the character of our God. Well, let's look further. We need to see the, the majestic rule of God delegated. Verses 5 to 8. And we'll go quickly through this because it all ties together. Even though you have puny man, puny man, there's a contrast here, verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the angels. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. So David is pointing out, like again, a contrast. Though man is puny and small, he's been given a grand and great responsibility by God. God made man a little lower than the angels. The Hebrew there is the word Elohim, which is typically translated God. So some of your Bibles or translations might read there, that in verse 5, you would make him a little lower than God, or others might say heavenly beings. Uh, there's a debate about what's, what's actually being communicated there. But in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, the word in reference to Christ, we'll, we'll look at that in a moment, but the word used in reference to Christ is angels. So you've made him a little lower than angels. That's probably what's going on in Psalm 8. But, but the point is clear. Man is lower than God and probably lower than angels too. We know that, that mankind is, is weaker than angels, and that's what we say. Like Angels have greater authority, greater strength, greater power. 
But the point is clear. Man is lower than, than, than God, just a little lower. In the creation order, he's been placed at the head of creation order. And just, just below, you say, the angels, which were also created. Nearly at the top of God's created order. A puny little man. At nearly the top of the created order. Certainly the top as far as the earth is concerned. God has given mankind a privileged place in his creation. And even the psalmist even uses the language there. You crown him. What is, what is, the word, what is a crown used for? Kingship rule. Which is what the verse talks about. It's, it's drawing that imagery together. You crown him with glory. There's a certain sense in which those who rule have have glory over that which they they, uh, they have the glory of being the leader of, of the realm that they lead. And this is amazing. And majesty. That's the phrase. Glory and majesty. Same word that we encountered before. How majestic is your name in all the earth. God in his grace is giving mankind a delegated glory and a delegated majesty. It's not a majesty of our own because we didn't deserve this speaks of God's grace. All this speaks of God's grace. We didn't earn this spot. We're puny. And we failed God. And he knew we would fail him. And yet he still gave us this spot in his creation. This, this spot of, of glory. This, this place in his, in his creation that has deferred glory and deferred um, majesty. That is, we're getting it from God. Delegated. Is not, I don't know when the word deferred, but uh, delegated. It's, it's delegate. It's not inherent to us. It's foreign to us, is another way to say it. This is a majesty, not to, to puff ourselves up, how great is man, but it's really to reflect the greatness of God. Again, remember what he said before? God establishes strength through what? The mouth of infants and children. So when you think about the position that God's given us, it's not because we're really great, really strong, really capable. It's because we're weak. And he wants to reflect his glory, his majesty through us. And the rest of this just emphasizes that. He says, you have made him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. Nothing's accepted. All things. And then he details that. You have put all things under his feet. That means you talk about something being under your feet. That means you rule over it. You walk on it. You have authority there. And he says, all sheep and oxen and also the the animals of the field. So in three different ways, he's saying everything that's on the dry land, you have authority over. But it's not doesn't limited that, to that. The birds of the heavens. Look up. The birds of the heavens. You have authority over them. And the fish of the sea. And because we know there's things in the, in the ocean that aren't just fish, he says, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. David doesn't even know everything that exists in the seas. But he just... He's just on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's just saying, whatever's in the seas, you have authority. What's the point? God has placed man as the crown of his earthly creation in order to display his glory, in order to display his majesty. And that should just, just mind-boggle us. Just be so grateful for that. We didn't, again, we didn't earn it. God is gracious to do this. And we read about this in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. Let me just read that. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. So, so God has given mankind a dignified position within his creation. Man is not equal to God and not equal to angels, but man is above all other earthly creatures. He rules not as the earth as his own, but as, as a viceroy. As a steward is how we're to rule. Man is to be a faithful steward of God's creation. So just, again, this helps us to think about some of the modern day environmental movements that are going on today. That take God off his throne. They say God doesn't exist. At the same time, they're deifying the earth. There's all sorts of movements that are doing this. Whether you call it Mother Earth or um, Gaiaism that's going on, that's increasing, and that's the worship of the earth. It's, it's just pantheism, really, is, is what it is. But animals are not our equal. That's what the world is telling us. They're not your equal. Now, we're to be stewards of them. We're not to misuse them. We're not to abuse them. We are to be good, faithful stewards of God's kingdom. But we are not equal with animals. Animals are not equal, to, equal with us. So, Again, guard against the idea of that these little animals that God created for His glory and for our benefit are people. They're not people. They have nations of the world that are now giving personhood rights to animals while they're taking it away from the unborn. How twisted a logic is that? Now, you might be thinking, well, what about the fall? All these things are true even after the fall. I say the fall, the fall of Adam and Eve, the introduction of sin into the world, that marred things. That made it more difficult for us to actually um, reflect the majesty of God. And it made the world rebel against God and against us. So the dominion that we exercise here um, post the fall, uh, which is the only thing that you and I ever know, is, is difficult. The world rebels. Even creation rebels. It doesn't want to come under the rule of man because of sin. Creation groans is how the Apostle Paul describes it. All of creation groans. But but our place in creation is nonetheless true. Even though we're in a fallen state, the image of God in us is marred by sin. But that's a great place to look at our last point in light of this. And, And I reached the end of verse 8. But there's something more profound for us to explore. And that is this. The majestic rule of God must be fulfilled by one who is greater than we are. This is a messianic psalm. David, who wrote Psalm 8, was the best king that Israel ever had. Again, he failed lots. He failed many times. He failed seriously. He failed to carry out the delegated authority and to rule over the earth. He was, Israel was to be the pinnacle of God's representation on earth, and Israel was to represent him to the nations. She failed in that. David failed. But there is one who will not fail. Christ, Jesus Christ, is the ultimate fulfillment of God's majestic rule. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews. 
Hebrews chapter 2. I mentioned it earlier, but I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 2. The, the, chapter 2 is dealing with, with an argument that the authors say that Jesus is greater than the angels. He's better than the angels. He's, you know, there, was a, there were people there who, were, who worshipped angels. But the author is saying Jesus is greater than the angels. But he uses Psalm 8 in his, in his argument. Look with me at uh, chapter 2. Um, this is beginning of verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, and where is that somewhere? Psalm 8. One has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you were concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we know... Now we know not yet to, sorry, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who was made a little while lower than the angels, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So who is Psalm 8 ultimately talking about? Christ, our Messiah. The one, who can't, the one who can do what we could not do. He's the second Adam who perfectly fulfills the, the, um, the rule of God on earth. That mediatorial kingdom where he is both man and God. This is just a beautiful description of of. The Lord's rule. And, and while here on earth we don't see this played out, there will come a day when, when everything will be put in subjection under the feet of Jesus. He will rule with perfection. We see this. Go Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul uses Psalm 8 as well. Ephesians 1. Let's just pick up at verse 15. Ephesians 1 verse 15. For this reason, I too, having having heard of the faith of the Lord in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the full knowledge of him, so that you, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Verse 19, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of, of, of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Look at verse 22. And when your translation uses all capitals in, a, in wording it, they're saying that that's a reference. It could be a direct quotation or merely a paraphrase of something in the Old Testament. So Paul is using Psalm 8 to speak about Christ being over everything. Everything is going to be put in subjection 
to him. But, but that's not all. Paul uses this one more time in 1 Corinthians 15 and talking about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. We see it there again. 1 Corinthians 15. I'll just pick up in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and after that those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. And he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all and all. Notice how many times the word subjected is used in that. Christ is going to return. He is going to establish his kingdom on earth to fulfill what Adam could not do and to, and to kibosh all other power and authority. And when he has established himself as the true God ruling over this earth, then he will give that kingdom as a gift back to the Father. That's our future. No one can resist God's power. And just look at the heavens. Look at the heavens and how powerful and majestic they declare that God is. You can't resist that. And thankfully, for most of you in this room, you don't want to resist that. You want to fall under, fall at his feet, at Jesus' feet, and worship him and glorify him. But there are some today here who don't know Christ. You can't win the dogfight with God. You just can't win it. You are going to bow your knee one way or the other. You're either going to bow your knee and worship to him through the through, through recognizing your sins, asking God to forgive you, and, and believing in faith in Jesus Christ, that he is who he is, and then you'll be adopted as a son, and you'll be cared for, and you'll be blown away that, that God would love you and care for you and redeem you and save you. But if you do not bow the knee as a humble, I guess in humble adoration of God, recognizing your sins, you will bow the knee as a broken warrior. You're going to be humiliated. Because God is going to show you to be the fool that you are. And don't say that in any kind of demeaning way. I'm just warning you from Scripture. Right? With scriptural truth. That you are going to lose the battle with God. But it doesn't have to be that way. If you'll but just, just bow your knee in humble submission to Him and believe in Christ so that you would be saved. And believers, reflect upon the grandeur and the majesty of God. In whatever sphere that God has placed you, you are called to reflect God's glory, God's majesty. In whatever sphere He has given you, have dominion over in your homes, in your workplaces, in the lives that you interact with. Give God the priority. Make Him the priority of your life. I mean, the God of the universe deserves to be praised. 
And that's why Scripture says we're to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. He is to be the priority of our life. And just worship our Lord and our God as, as Jesus, the one who can restore humanity, the great mediator, restoring humanity, and bringing us into subjection, perfect subjection to the Father. Oh, look up in the heavens and see the majesty of God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we just thank you for your loving kindness and just how you declare your majesty. You didn't, you didn't have to do that. You chose to reveal yourself to us. You chose to become a man, to live a perfect life, to die in our place, and to be raised in newness of life, and to grant eternal life to all those who believe in you. Oh, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to see the a fresh view of your majesty, of how majestic your name is in all the earth through this psalm. And I just pray that you would apply it to our hearts. And Lord, we just uh, thank you for your, just your work in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.